You're listening to Work Tape, episode 84. Welcome to another edition of the Work Tape podcast. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Groovin Grover in the building, and we got a real treat for you today. As we alluded to in some of our previous episodes, it has been long overdue that we go more into a deep dive of probably one of the most iconic producers in the hip-hop R&B and uh, neo-soul genres of music, James Yancey, or as many on the internet know him and just as many people know him, Jay Dilla. The story and the upbringing behind the music is almost as fascinating as the music itself. Now, Jay Dilla was surgical with the MPC and very much like how Hendrix was great with the guitar, I would say that Dilla was the same with the MPC. I mean, I think that in both cases, more of like an extension of themselves. It wasn't even just like, you know, somebody playing an instrument or sequencing a beat. It was really just an extension of their personalities and ultimately their soul. And I think there was a lot of techniques specifically that Dilla did that still really permeate throughout music today, especially in the hip hop and R&B genres. And so I think there's been a lot more flowers that have been given to Dilla recently. However, I don't think people really understood the impact that he had until he passed away in the mid 2000s um, from lupus, which is a blood disease. And it's a really interesting thing because I feel like in a lot of cases, and we talked about this even, as a matter of fact, did an entire series on this, but it seems like death kind of amplifies musicians sometimes. Uh, It often does, sadly. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of cases where, I mean, sure, there's flowers being given while they're alive, but I feel like people don't really understand the significance until you know, these artists are gone. And I mean, you know, of course, you have situations where people died, you know, kind of, I guess, prematurely, or a little bit before they even really fully developed, you know, their potential. I mean, an example of that recently would be Mac Miller, someone who was really coming into his own more creatively when he unfortunately overdosed. But I feel like with Jay Dilla, because he had been in the game for such a long time, but He was more of a behind-the-scenes guy being a producer. I feel like his death and the release of Donuts, which, in my opinion, is probably one of the best instrumental albums ever made, definitely you know, an all-time great collection of beats, I feel like that's when a lot of people really started to understand just how much he contributed to the sound of so many of their favorite artists, you know? I mean, if you want to talk musically the sextuplet swing, you know, the kind of drunk feeling on the percussion, that was something that wasn't really done too much before Dilla came in. You know, Dilla, you know, with the idea of, you know, sequencing and and hip hop, you know, so much is kind of rigid, even with a lot of NPC work, really before Dilla, a lot of it was kind of rigid and very like, on the grid, you know, there was that, uh, that quantization, Um, You know, especially with the way that 
the tech was kind of evolving at the late 90s and early 2000s with Pro Tools and various technological elements to kind of make it, you know, technically correct. Dilla was somebody who actually strayed away from that. He um, had the drums basically be slightly either ahead or slightly behind the beat or I guess where the transient should be. And I think that resulted in a majority of what got known as kind of his signature sound with that swing to it, that kind of bounce. And, you know, despite the fact that he was doing everything on an MPC, it made it sound real. It made it sound like a real drummer was playing over a lot of this instrumentation, which I think was something that's pretty cool. And I feel like with a lot of hip hop, especially in in R&B, and even with kind of a rebirth of boom bap, I feel like we're continuing to see that quite a bit, especially with these modern takes on it as well. The other thing that Dilla was just excellent with, and I mean just truly excellent, was uh, his use of sampling. And that's kind of what led us into this series that we're going to do for the next couple episodes in regards to just the prominence of Dilla and just the fact that he was so great in regards to taking bits and pieces of songs and multiple songs actually in a lot of cases and creating something entirely new to the point where it wasn't just he took a four or eight bar loop and put some drums underneath it and called it a beat you know it's not like a lot of the producers that you hear now where they just take a four bar eight bar instrumental section they put some 808s and some kicks and maybe a couple of other like little elements and they call it a beat, you know? There was a lot more intention behind it. And an example of that, there's a track on the Donuts album, it's called Don't Cry, um, which is the sample from, is it the Escorts? I think it was the Escorts, yeah. Yeah, it was an obscure kind of soul sample from the Escorts. And it's a brilliant track because in the first minute or so of the track or less than a minute of the track the sample just plays out and it's kind of dilla saying like here's what i have to work with and then after that sample plays out a while you hear this just complete reconstruction using all these various little bits and pieces of the song and strung together to create this quite you know beautiful composition and i don't know i just think that with Dilla, he always had music that was really smooth. It was very cohesive. The samples that he picked were not just at random. There was, I feel like, a lot of intention behind the elements that he was picking. Kind of like Daft Punk, too. You know, Daft Punk is another example of artists who were really meticulous about sampling. And, you know, I just saw a video on the breakdown for... Um, I think, is it Face to Face off of the Discovery record, which had, I didn't know that so much of that song was sampled until I, you know, took a look at this. So I just think that what Dilla created was just kind of that smooth, laid back, cohesive sound that you could kind of get lost in. And a big part, and I think we mentioned this, and I think even in one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, I think Jay Dilla created lo-fi hip hop. I was just going to say that you you got it. (laughs) Yeah, he is, I would say, one of the founding fathers of lo-fi hip-hop music because so much of that movement in the 24-hour stream channels or, you know, the channels where it's just instrumental beats, 
it's Dilla. I mean, it all goes back to Dilla. Um, New Jobbies, too, as well. I would say that probably New Jobbies is kind of right up there with Dilla. I mean, I don't think New Jobbies gets even as much love as Dilla does just because Dilla was working in kind of the R&B space and the hip hop space. So most of, you know, Dilla's cred was mostly in regards to the collaborations he worked on, you know, with artists like D'Angelo, The Roots, you know, and whatnot. All of those, you know, collaborations being excellent, by the way. So if anybody is looking for some new music recommendations, I would highly, highly recommend the Soulquarian kind of set of albums, um, which was all done at Electric Lady, Hendrix's studio. So once again, kind of a bit of a full circle moment there. But yeah, I think Dilla just did so much in terms of creating that sound and kind of ushering in some new techniques in regards to recording. I mean, I think Questlove was even quoted at saying that his entire drumming style changed after sitting in on Dilla's production. And I definitely think that it's one of the things where you know a Dilla beat when you hear it, basically. Yeah, for sure. It's very textured. It does have that kind of loose feeling to it. It's on time, but it's also loose at the same time. It's very interesting. There's a subtlety to his beats and doubling down on the lo-fi character of his sound. I personally like a lot of... uh, Where was Dilla from, by the way? Was he West or East? Uh, He was Midwest. Detroit. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, Detroit. Detroit. So, I mean, he counts as an East Coaster. There's a lot to be said about Detroit, Chicago, and that area, even versus New York and the South. But, you know, a lot of my favorite sounds were more the East Coast sound, whether or not they're from there, Mm -hmm. like Pete Rock and RZA. And I kind of tend to like the heavier sounds. Like, Dilla was was softer. And I don't want to say soft as in, like, he didn't, he wasn't intentional. But there is a softness to his beats that were more, it was more soothing, I guess is probably the best way to put it is that his 90s production, because I'm just going to oversimplify it. I'm just going to talk about 90s production. His 90s sound, his boom bap sound was a lot more smooth and a lot more soothing. Mm-hmm. And then you got into the harder beats, you know, something like uh, Illmatic. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the hardest album of all time, but like you take that, you take the Wu-Tang Clan, you take some more like, um, I would say that lo-fi-ness is part of Dilla's character, but his beats weren't necessarily the most gritty and hardcore. Right. So there are similarities, but there's definitely a difference with the way Dilla approached music. You know, the whole soul and just getting into like a feel. I would say he was more jazz focused in a way than a lot of these harder beats, which I like a lot. But jazz is about nuance. And Dilla was very much into the nuance aspect of music. And about the little things that we don't pay attention to, like the ghost kicks. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are just so many things. He was all about subtleties. And I noticed that about Dilla a lot. Whereas, you know, some of the other guys, they're a little bit more brash. Yeah. And more in your face. Oh, definitely. Yes. And it's cool to kind of listen to these different producers and hear their sounds mm-hmm. and kind of how they go through, you know, our Mob Deep was great too. So, there's just so much in the differences between each artist, but Dilla for sure, the more contemplative type kind of I'm thinking about things right now type of beats. They're very thoughtful. Yes. And I don't think they were necessarily straightforward. Mm-mm. 
I think his beats weren't, I mean, they were straightforward as far as like perfectly simple, but they weren't so straightforward in the sense like there was always something to uncover when you listen to his music. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like, here it is, check it out. That's it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think art is rarely face value, mm-hmm. but I think that Dilla's beats over many other producers definitely lacks that face value aspect. Like there's so much to uncover in that subtlety and that softness and that smoothness and that nuance. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that it is kind of one of those things, just like, you know, a great film or any kind of great artistic expression where there's just subtleties and details that you pick up with each new experience, I guess. And his 3000 was a big part of his sound. We can't ignore that. Oh, yeah, (laughs) of course. Of course, the MPC is is huge. And I mean, what's really kind of mind boggling is just how precise he was pre-computer era and the fact that he was able to chop so finely and so succinctly, even, you know, before Pro Tools and digital production was really a, a standard and the fact that it was all pretty much just by ear and, you know, just the right level of you know sequencing on on the MPC, but I do think that yeah, you bring up a good point in regards to how his production compared to even who would be his contemporaries at the time, which would be Dr. Dre or Pete Rock or DJ Premier or maybe even DJ Quick out of the West Coast. Yeah, those producers definitely had like harder hitting, more kind of like, not bombastic, but kind of just more, as you said, like in your face style production, where it was just like, here it all is. Meanwhile, you know, Dilla did focus a lot on the subtlety. He focused a lot on nuance and really, I think, used it to his advantage, I think. And I think also, I mean, his beats have just aged really, really well. I think because of that. I mean, now they're relevant again. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who are kind of going back and trying to emulate basically the sound that he really pioneered. And I think that kind of goes back to what I was talking about in regards to giving a lot of that live feel to the fact that he intentionally didn't quantize his beats and he didn't quantize his drums. And I think that's kind of a big thing. It gives, you know, a genre that's built a lot on synthetic sounds and kind of synthetic production. It gives it a human element to it. It gives a human element and I guess maybe even like a warmth to it as well. His beats were warm. I don't think his beats were every crispy. And the lo-fi character of his beats was that a lot of his, um, he would definitely get that thump out of his kick and take out a lot of the harmonic area on the higher end of the frequency spectrum. Yeah. It's almost more like reggae, but I also sometimes felt like, I mean, his beats were balanced, but they weren't like pristine. Mm -hmm. He didn't go for a pristine sound. He went for a little bit more of a rugged, noisy background, you know, like that hiss. Yeah. And, you know, depended from track to track, but he would go for a more like thumpy, not too thumpy, but pretty thumpy and kind of lacking too much crispy high end. And of course, his production did change a little bit 
you know, different mixing methods and whatnot as time went on and different. I don't know if he's changed NPCs. I don't think he always uses 3000. Maybe he did. I could be wrong. But, you know, in different preamps and whatnot, you know, I mean, things change a lot in the music industry in 10 years. Oh, yeah, of course. There's huge paradigm shifts. And that's a big part of what kind of we've been talking about in the last couple episodes, especially with kind of tech's role in regards to music. And if you compare kind of 90s production Billa to more of like the early 2000s, kind of leading up to his death in the mid 2000s, the biggest difference is, is that I think with the early 2000s and mid 2000s, especially if you listen to, um, there's a beat tape, I think, or an album, it's actually, I think, an album called The Shining, I think was released posthumously, but was obviously done, you know, way before he died. Here's Yancey. <laughs> yeah. The higher end on the mixes on those albums is a bit more pronounced. It's a bit more crisp. As he was getting into the early 2000s, I think he kind of understood where and how hip hop was kind of changing and did evolve a bit. Mm -hmm. But I still think he maintained kind of that soulful, homey, artistically muffled and warm sound. Yeah, that he established in the you know mid to late 90s. You know, and he, of course, worked with, you know, Tribe Called Quest and, you know, Q-Tip and Common, you know, all of the roots and pretty much all of those artists definitely fell in that intersection between jazz and hip hop and in some cases even kind of more in the R&B space. So he was kind of right at home, I think, with that movement that was going on at that time. And, you know, a lot of the albums that he's produced on are, you know, holding up extremely well. Um, Voodoo, D'Angelo's Voodoo is amazing. Like Water for Chocolate is amazing. So I think he was just right at home with with that kind of intersection of of those genres. And he did lean more into East Coast, despite the fact that he was more Midwest being in Detroit. I would say that the East Coast leaning was definitely there especially because the jazziness of his beats, the kind of piano emphasis. He has a lot of keys, usually with his samples. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack in regards to Dilla. And, I mean, his influence has been felt even in, you know, early Kanye had a lot of influence from Dilla, too, just with kind of the soulfulness of the samples. And early Kanye beats weren't exactly super crunchy or crisp either there's a lot of similarities if you actually look at early kanye production and jay dilla production and both of them you know coming from the midwest with yay coming out of chicago and dilla coming out of detroit of course dilla was proceeding so you know yay kind of borrowed a lot so there's there's definitely influence being had there and then i just feel like recently with you know, Joey Badass and Denzel Curry putting out more of the kind of smooth 90s style hip hop. Well, thanks to Freddie Jokum. So, I mean, yeah, definitely. And it's just one of those things where it's, I think the influence is going to continue to live on. I mean, it's definitely in, like I said, the lo fi and chill hop community too. I mean, I think Dilla and you know, new jobbies, as well as a couple of others are kind of held up as more than human, even in some cases. Uh, Dilla, yes, because he's like superhuman everywhere I go. He's everywhere. Yeah. 
and you know for good reason in just the sense that there was so much in terms of how hip-hop was produced and kind of like i said giving that laid back feel to things and definitely you know with certain time signature manipulations and that kind of swing and so many artists continue to try to replicate it even artists that are not traditionally in the soul and r&b space you know try to capture a bit of that i guess magic he'd like uh take the six eight and switch to like four four right yes yeah yes that was a big dilla thing it's definitely going from six eight to four four or, or the other way even too so there was definitely a lot of manipulation of time in that aspect and of course you know with it being black history month i would say that dilla is definitely one of the best you know, one of the best producers, regardless of skin color, but also just one of the best, you know, black producers ever in, you know, recent history. And actually, that kind of leads into, you know, some potential ideas. Quincy for... Jones has entered the chat. <laughs> well, no, we could definitely talk about Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones, that's probably a whole episode or two in itself in regards to talking just about Quincy Jones. I mean, everything from, you know, Sinatra to MJ to all the, you know, orchestration. The TV shows he's done. Yeah. The film scores that he did. I mean, that's a whole nother kind of episode in itself. But I mean, with it being, you know, Black History Month, I would say that, you know, there's definitely some room to talk about, you know, great producers and or just kind of like great landmark albums, too you know, as well. Um, but more probably on the producing side, because we've dove deep into albums, but we really haven't, you know, gone as in depth with who produced them so much. Yeah, that needs a change. And so with kind of this one, starting with Dilla and really just celebrating and doing this episode on all the contributions, actually, his birthday was this month as well. I think it was pretty recent, actually. It was like, oh, Bob Marley's too, February 6th. Yeah. Uh, Happy birthday to Bob Marley as well. But of course, happy birthday to Dilla. I think it was the 12th or something like that. I think that's his birthday. Um, so it was pretty recent. So it was like yesterday, really? I think, or a couple of days ago. I have to be sure. Let me really get on that just to be sure. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, he was actually on February 7th. So it's a little while ago. Well, hey, you're in the right month, man. <laughs> yeah, so February 7th. So with kind of Dilla's birthday being, you know, recent enough, I felt like it was, you know, pretty appropriate to talk about, you know, just the contributions he made to music and diving a bit into the 90s and early 2000s production. And, you know, I, I do really believe that he is the godfather of a lot of lo-fi genres and so much of that prominence and especially like the YouTube community can be attributed back to um, the groundwork that Dilla laid. You know, just one of the all-time greatest producers, really shaped R&B, neo-soul, hip-hop as we know it, covered a wide spectrum of genres from, you know, Tribe Called Quest, the more jazz-oriented hip-hop, to some more experimental stuff that he did in his solo work. And, you know, he can be compared, honestly, to some of the other great African-American music producers such as Quincy Jones and Nile Rodgers, too, who, you know, preceded him and I'm sure had great influence on 
uh, his style of music as well, especially Quincy Jones being from a jazz background, I would say that there was probably a lot to be said um, in regards to the Quincy and Dilla connection. But Dilla, I think, is definitely on a Mount Rushmore of African-American music producers with Nile Rodgers, with Quincy Jones. And, you know, it maybe even throw Dr. Dre up there, too if you really want to have kind of that West Coast representation. Oh, uh, you almost forgot about Dre. Yeah, I, I didn't, though. <laughs> I did not. Despite the fact that uh, Dre takes way too long to come out with albums that people do kind of forget sometimes, uh, I did not. And so that kind of leads us into a series as well of discussing these great producers and starting off with a bang with Jay Dilla this time around. and then leading into Nile and Quincy, specifically in the 80s, and then Dre in the 90s and 2000s. And what better time to talk about great African-American music producers than Black History Month? During the month of African-Americans. <laughs> I will cease to exist come March. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing, though. I mean, let's be honest. You know, history, Black history is all the time. There is that that is the thing. So so much of you know, there's a misconception of things and whatnot. And I, I think that black history is all the time. I think regular history is black history. I think you're you cool, know, Mitch. I just like making things awkward because I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, for our Black History Month special, we're gonna be talking about some great African American producers. We talked about Dilla today. Stay tuned next time. We're going to be diving deep into Nile Rodgers and Quincy Jones, the two producers who undoubtedly ruled the airwaves in the 80s, just between their bodies of work. And then we'll follow it up with Dr. Dre and his West Coast contributions, his you know emergence of discovery of talent from Snoop Dogg to Eminem to Kendrick Lamar, even up to Anderson Pack. You know, so... Once again, this has been an edition of the Work Tape Podcast. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. We have Isaac Rubin Grover. Stay hydrated. Peace out. Uh, stay black. Peace out. <laughs>